Uh, I also want to remind you that this Wednesday will be the uh, Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. Everyone's going to assemble in here uh, at 7 p.m. We usually have kind of a uh, family reunion with that because a lot of people are back in town. But there will be no, I think the bulletin we put in there, uh, all adult classes. Well, yes, and everything else too. So we'll all be in here Wednesday night at 7 Um do, do feel free to invite your friends and family if you've got people in town with you. Uh, be here. And uh, we usually, we just have a, a brief devotional. It's a spirit of, of uh, thanksgiving and welcoming. So I, I'd, I'd love to see you here. Um, we are good to go with this class for next Sunday night. We'll be in here. And December 4th, there will be something in here. Um, and then, uh, I, I'm in a long story, but I may not be here. But uh, the, uh, and then on December 11th, though, I want you to remember December 11th because that's the night when we have our, uh, this will be our second annual Tidings of Great Joy. This is where the, the children uh, tell the story of uh, the birth of Christ. And, and if, you know, if, if, our, if our trunk or treat's any indication we do think that there's going to be some outreach to others who are going to want to come and experience this because at this time of year, people in the community, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a glimmer, there's a draw to Christianity. And I think that if people find uh, a friendly group, they'll be drawn to that. You know, there, there's so much good stuff happening. We saw the news that two people were baptized out of the Hope Park ministry yesterday, that Dave Cogswell baptized them. And... Um, and then we had uh, two baptisms this morning. So, again, it's all about that, that hope that's extended, that people are finding that truthful community in Christ. Uh, so, tonight's lesson, we're, you know, we're, we're looking at how we got the Bible and how we got to, to you know, from the, from the original manuscripts to, to this Bible. You and I have the Bible in English. Before we got started here, Daryl and I were looking at apps that can give you a lot of different English scriptures. But the notion that scripture should even be in English is, at one time, that was controversial. And uh, it, was, um, it, it was not a given. And I've been researching this idea of pirate Bibles. Now, these aren't Bibles that buccaneers use. These are the idea of um, illegal Bibles. You know, you've heard of pirate radio. Pirate radio is radio that's broadcast off the, the coast of some country, and they're broadcasting propaganda, or they're broadcasting something that's not allowed. Uh, pirating movies and pirating uh, video is it's illegal, but they're wanting to get something out there for free. You know, you can uh, you don't have to pay as much for it. It's the idea of, of uh, uh, you know, there used to be a um, um, thing called torrents on the Internet where you could get uh, movies and stuff that weren't being sold or, or broadcast from other nations, and you would go to a website called the Pirate Bay, and you would download all this stuff. And uh, so there's this kind of free spirit. Well, it's in that same spirit that at one time the Word of God in English had to come from people who had that same pirating spirit because they wanted to get this information out into the hands of people so that people could understand it. 
And that happens in the 14th century in England. Now, the path to, to their work uh, comes, comes about through one of our early translations that we look at. You'll remember in our lesson about translations, you have this, this, this initial wave in the 2nd and 3rd century of all these people translating the Word of God into their own languages. Uh, they're translating it in Coptic and Armenian. Uh, they're, they're getting it out there, Syriac. You know, it's like, can we translate this into the language of the people? There's no one to say no, and so they, they, go, they go with it. It's free. Well, in the 7th and 8th century, you have translations into the Anglo-Saxon languages. And um, some of the names that are associated with this are names that still uh, stick around with us. Cademan. Um, Cademan is one of the earliest Christian poets uh, or English-speaking poets. And, uh, and then you have Bede, who's known as the Venerable Bede. I don't know what's so venerable about him, but he's venerable. And so there he is translating. In the, in the 700s, he's translating the Gospel of John into the Anglo-Saxon language. Um, King Alfred uh, commissions a translation of the Psalms in, in uh, the year 901. And then one of the, the best-known examples of these, uh, and by the way, these are manuscripts. There's no printing press. There's no movable type. All of this has to be handwritten. It has to be the work of artisans. And one of those that, that still exists, and I actually remember learning about this in, uh, when, I was, when I was studying art and art history. It's called the Lindisfarne Gospel, and it's a Latin text, but it has sections of it in Anglo-Saxon. But it's, a, it's an illuminated manuscript. It's beautifully made. Um, so here it is coming from the 8th century, and the illustrations in it are fantastic. And that's always what they show you in the art history books is here will be an illustration. You know, there's some picture and, uh, you know, it'll be some, you know, uh, representation of, um, you know, some parable or something like that. But then it'll have those illuminated uh, letters, those fantastic letters that are colored in and uh, decorated like you see on the screen there. So this is what's happening and, and, and along the way, they're putting some of this, they're translating it out of Latin, which shows us, too, that Latin is becoming more of a church language. The educated people speak Latin. The educated understand Latin. The church officials understand Latin. Now, now by the way, we're in the West now. We're talking about the, uh, you know, the, uh, the British Isles. Uh, and, and, um, and so they're, But they're, most of the people speak other languages other than Latin. Um, in, the, in the 1300s, the late 1300s, the 14th century, you have a man named John Wycliffe, and he's known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. Now, uh, just to give some historical perspective here, it's, it's going to be in the 16th century, in the 1500s, that you're going to have the Protestant Reformation cut loose. In fact, next year, on my birthday will be the, uh, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing those theses to the, to the Wittenberg Chapel door, October 31st, 1517. And uh, I don't know, maybe we'll have trunk or treat and we'll reenact that or something here and we can nail something to the door. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's the Protestant Reformation. I mean, and you have this, 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 this big movement in Germany and all throughout Europe where people, you know, you have uh, uh, people in, in Switzerland and, all, and they're, they're, 
it's this idea that, hey, you know, maybe, maybe the, the hierarchy or the, the, the institution of the Catholic Church doesn't have all the answers, and there's all these forces that promote that. England has its own version of the Reformation, the English Reformation, which is just as political as it is religious. Okay, but we won't get into all that right now. And, uh, you know, it, it serves the king's interests. But before that... Over a hundred years before that, you have this man, John Wycliffe, who others in the, 15, or in the 1500s will even look back to and they'll say, you know, he was the first light of the Reformation. And so he's often called the morning star of the Reformation because some of the things that he does kick some of this off. Um, he completes a translation of the Bible in English. Now, it's Middle English, but that's the English that they speak in the 1300s. And uh, around 1380, from, from about 1380, throughout the 1380s, he translates different parts of the Bible. And all of this has to be done by hand. Um, he has some, and once he uh, uh, affects the translation, he gives it to copyists. He has disciples. Uh, he has people who follow him. They become known as the Lollards. And if you look up Lollardy in uh, England, these Lollards are, are, and that's kind of a pejorative name because Loller is a Middle English verb that means to mutter. And the reason they, they say that is because they're running around preaching in English, which doesn't sound like Latin. It just doesn't sound right. And so even though people may not understand the Latin, when they're preaching in English, it's like, well, they're mumblers, they're muttering, they're, you know, they're, they're speaking in an unauthorized language, English. And that's what their critics call them, the mutterers, the mumblers. But these Lollards then are involved. They, they keep making these manuscripts, these pirate Bibles, to get this information out there. Now, what's interesting about Wycliffe's translation is that he's working out of Latin. So he's working out of a translation, or he's making a translation of a translation of the Greek. So you've got your Greek original, your Hebrew originals, you've got the Latin, and actually with Hebrew, you can even go Hebrew to Greek to Latin in some cases, and that there are that many steps removed away. But this is the best that Wycliffe can do. Wycliffe is not a student of Hebrew and Greek, not like later scholars will be. Um, but he's comfortable with Latin, and Latin would have been the accepted translation of scriptures in, the, in England in the, uh, in the 14th century. And so they're making these manuscripts in English, and they're making, uh, they're making large manuscripts, but they're also making these small manuscripts. We'll get to that in a second. Um, and that's not very well received, what they're doing. Not everybody is keen on this idea. You and I might be saying, well, what, what is, what is, and by the way, there's 250 of these manuscripts that still exist. Uh, a 1392 manuscript uh, sold uh, some time ago for $2 million. That's how rare they are. Each one is unique because each one is handmade. Um, these Lollards would distribute these Bibles. They would go about the work of copying, and they would go out into the country, and they would, they would distribute these Bibles. It took 10 months and 40 pounds to produce one manuscript. Uh, 40 pounds, uh, that's something like $80 an hour, but 
that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money in 1380s. Um, and some of Wycliffe's followers, when they were found with these Bibles, the manuscript, that 10-month manuscript, and that human being who was distributing that would be burned at the stake, and they would string that Bible around their neck. Why is there so much animosity towards people translating this Word of God into English? This is, um, th- these are some of the first translations of Scripture where it's not very well received, where there's some pushback. You know, back in those wild days of the second and third century, when you're translating into Syriac and Coptic and so on and so forth, no one's saying much about that. It's just translate it. Why? Because we need it. Translate it. You've got missionaries in places like Armenia inventing an alphabet so that the Word of God can be translated into Armenian. And then that extends over to Georgia. And some of the same people that were working there in Armenia then invent the Georgian alphabet. They invent an alphabet just so it can be translated. But now, in England, the country of our native language, people who are translating scriptures are being burned. They're being executed by fire. We're going to get to the reason why, but I want you to see how these translators went about their translations. A few of these manuscripts had a preface in them. And that, that preface would, would and, and you can look it up as the preface or the great preface to the Wycliffe Bible. Okay. And this preface would describe their translation method. It was a four-stage method. First, they would take the Latin texts, the ones that were available to them, and they would determine which were the most trustworthy. So they get their original source. Now, later on in part two of this, we're going to see how they go back a step behind Latin and they get to Greek. But something has to happen first before you can translate from Greek to English. There's a development that will happen in the 1500s. But let's, get, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, these Wycliffeites, Wycliffe and the Lollards, What they have at hand are the Latin texts. That's what they have to work from. So they'll gather that up, and then they'll make a a sort. They'll make a decision. Okay, these are the most reliable Latin texts. Second, they'll look at the scriptures in relation to uh, literature guides available to them. So um, they'll compare it to, to... you know, to whatever guides, whatever reference sources they have, to other language. They're going to study the language that they're translating out of. Then they're going to study the Latin language rules, the principles, the linguistics, and the grammar. How does Latin work? How do we understand it? Because the way you say something in Latin is not the same way you're going to say something in English. Uh, you know, verbs are going to be in a different place. You know, if you've studied any languages at all, you know this. But they're going to understand Latin. They're going to, come to, they're going to really understand what Latin is trying to say. Then they're going to translate the Latin text into the final Middle English wording. And in that fourth stage, they'll even say, what we're going for is not a word-for-word translation. What we want is the same essential idea that's being expressed in Latin to be expressed in Middle English. Now, that translation format is essentially the same format that's used today for Bible translation. And the reason why I point that out to you is because you have 
at, at stage four, you have some options. And we'll get into this in a later lesson. You can go word for word. And we've got word for word translations of the Greek. And they're called interlinears. And if you ever hear somebody say, I want a word-for-word translation for the Greek. No, you don't. No, you don't. Sounds like Yoda reading the Bible. It just, you know, everything's out of, you know, out of place. It doesn't work, you know. For they to Jerusalem went long ago, did they? You know, it's stuff like that. So you're like, uh, it's not going to help you much. But it might help you if you're doing some research, figure out how the words sound in Greek. But even you are going to then take that and you're going to interpret that into your language and the way you speak. So you've got some options there at stage four, but you're going to be going through all of this at any point when you're translating. This is why Wycliffe lends his name to a, I mean, his name continues as the name of a, of a translation school even today. Why is it such a big deal that they bother to translate all of this? Why are they being burned at the stake with these Bibles wrapped around their neck? The number one problem with what Wycliffe is doing for their opponents is that their work is unauthorized. That's it. It's not that their translation method is an error. It's not that they're, I mean, they they put their translation methodology out there. That's pretty scholarly. That's researched. They, They say, hey, listen, we want people to understand how we got to the translation that we got to. They would even invite others to be involved in that. Wycliffe had students who were helping him with these translations. They wanted people to think. They wanted people to engage in this. They wanted people to understand the meaning of these texts. And there was room for debate. But the real problem with it was that that those who were in power said, this does not have our authorization. You've heard the King James Version described as the authorized version. Some people think that that means it was authorized by God. That's not the case. And you may like the King James, and that's, and that's great. It's a good translation. That's fine. But I have to tell you, it was not authorized by God. It's authorized by the king. King James. That's why it's called his version. Because by being an authorized translation, everybody could say, okay, it's official. We can agree to this. People are not fond of Wycliffe translating this. The other reason is, is that people, there, there, is, there are some, um, there's more than just Bible translation going on here. There's some concern about the state of the church with Wycliffe and his followers. Wycliffe was critical of things that were going on in the church. And the church in England at this time in the 1300s would just simply be, it's not the Church of England yet. That doesn't happen until the 1500s. It's just the church. It's a Catholic church. They don't even call it the Catholic church. Why? Because it's just the church. The only other option you've got is the Eastern Orthodox Church, and that's way over in the eastern part of Europe and Russia. And church and royal politics are being threatened by what Wycliffe is doing. Um, Something I don't have in the slides, but I want to read to you a document that's called The Twelve Conclusions of the Lollards. In 1395, the followers of John Wycliffe publish what they call their their Twelve Conclusions. 
And this will give you some sense of what their concerns are about the state of the church in England. Conclusion one. The first conclusion asserts that the English church has become too involved in the affairs of temporal power led by the bad example of the church of Rome. Conclusion two. The ceremonies used for the ordination of priests and bishops are without scriptural basis or precedent. Now, if you understand scripture... You get that. If people can hear it in English, they get that. If people don't know Scripture, they don't get that. This is why this is threatening. Conclusion three asserts that the practice of, of clerical celibacy has encouraged sodomy among the clergy. Here they are in 1395. I mean, we think that a lot of this stuff that's going on in the news today is modern and recent. No, it's not. They're having the same problem in 1395. They're saying clerical celibacy is a tradition. It's not Scripture. You would know that if you would read Scripture. And they're saying the problem with it is it leads to other problems. Fourth conclusion. The doctrine of transubstantiation leads to idolatrous worship of everyday objects. In particular, communion wafers. You see, the idea of transubstantiation, which again, the Lollards and Wycliffe are saying, that's not scriptural. But you get this idea that that, that that bread and that wine transforms into the body and blood of Christ. All sorts of mystical legends grew up about that. This is why they had to protect those, because after they've been through the transubstantiation, if Satanists get a hold of that, they'll take it out into the, out into the wilderness and they'll torture the body of Christ. There were people who believed that that was happening, that witches were doing something with the communion. These are some of the first urban legends. But then also people would believe that there was a magic contained in those communion wafers. So when they received the communion wafers, sometimes they'd, you know, they'd put it on their mouth, but they wouldn't swallow it. And then they would take it and they would have a, a totem of magic. Even in our day and age, we get so caught up in the substance of the communion. Is it this kind of bread? Is it that kind of bread? Is it this kind of wine? Is it this kind of juice? Is it done this way? Is it looked this way? Is it and we forget the meaning of it. The meaning of it is what Jesus emphasized. He took bread, which would have had its place in Passover, and he says, This is my body. And they're all looking at him like, what's he talking about? His body? That's not his body. That's the bread. That's the Exodus bread. That's the fast made bread, because we've got to live. This is my body. It's broken for you. Meaning. This is my blood. No, that's not the blood. That's one of the, 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 the celebration cups during the Passover. No, this is my blood. It's going to be the symbol of a new covenant. Wycliffe and his followers know that if people don't understand the meaning, if they can't hear and read those accounts of the communion, it'll lead to bad stuff. Fifth conclusion. Exorcisms and hallowings carried out by priests are a sort of witchcraft and are incompatible with Christian theology. How do you like that? I mean, these exorcists, and, 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 and they're seeing a problem in England that, the, that the, the, the priests in the church are buying into the whole exorcism and superstition of the people, and they're charging money to, to hallow ground and stuff like that. And so they're saying, no, 
this is just, this is just a new form of witchcraft, and, these, and, and, and they're participating in it. Conclusion six, it's inappropriate for men who hold high office in the church to simultaneously hold positions of temporal power. It's corruption. Conclusion seven, prayers for the souls of specific individuals, deceased persons, is uncharitable since it implicitly excludes all the other blessed dead who are not being prayed for and that the practice of requesting prayers for the dead by making financial contributions is a sort of bribery that corrupts the church. For most of us, we hear this and we think, yeah, that sounds about right. But this is novel. And where are they getting this? Because they're understanding Scripture. Um, Let me get to some of the the, uh, conclusion 10. Christians should refrain from warfare, and in particular, that wars given religious justifications, such as the Crusades, are blasphemous because Christ taught men to love and forgive their enemies. You know, one of the things we still hear today is, is that, you know, why Christians are to blame for the Crusades. Here are Christians who are opposed to the Crusades. They're saying, no, the Crusades, that's political stuff. The kings are involved in that. The high officials of the church, the corrupt church, are involved in that. But the real followers of Christ are saying, we are not participating in those religiously justified wars. So there's another side to the story. How do they, why do they say that? Why do they assert such a thing? Are they a bunch of pacifists? No, they've read Scripture. Conclusion 11. Women in the church who've made vows of celibacy are having sex, becoming pregnant, and then seeking abortions to conceal the fact that they have broken their vows. That's 1395, folks. The good old days. Nothing new under the sun. But they're, they're finding ways around that, and they're saying Scripture, that he, they say to, to, to break the vow of celibacy, and then to destroy a pregnancy, they say the text strongly condemns it. They're recognizing the authority of the Word of God, and that's putting the authority of the church officials and the king at risk. Conclusion 12. Christians are devoting too much of their energy and attention to the making of beautiful objects of art and craft, and people should simplify their lives and renew their devotion to godliness by refraining from unnecessary endeavors. This will be the foundation of the Puritans. Conclusion 12, I'm going to admit, too much of their energy? Yeah. Some of it? That's not all bad. There's some good stuff that comes out of that. I mean, you see in the manuscripts that they, they that, like that man, that's a Wycliffe Bible right there. Well, I would say whoever's translating this is spending a little time on the artwork right there. You know, that big letter I is a bit decorated. So I'm, I'm with them for 11 of them. On 12, I'll say, uh, I don't think you guys are reading scripture on that. I think you're getting your personal biases out there. These Lollards aren't perfect. But again, what they see in contrast is they're looking at the, the, the extent and the money and the extravagance of these art objects that are often you know, costing more than what it takes uh, for people to live on, and they're, they're challenging that. But isn't it interesting that through the translation of Scripture and reading it and understanding it in their own language, they're able to draw these conclusions, and that threatens 
the powers that be. Few could afford to own handmade Bibles like that, like that right there. That's a handmade Bible. That's a page from a Wycliffe Bible written by hand. It's got doodles all over it to make it pretty. Looks like one of my pages that I, from my notes in college, you know, but they, uh, they, uh, I don't know. The, uh, but such an item was costly at 40 pounds. Took almost a year to make. So when you would take these Bibles around, not everybody can get one. There's not that many of them, and they can't afford it. So they would rent them. Wycliffe and his followers would travel the countryside with these Bible manuscripts. Sometimes the people would borrow it or rent it for a day, even for just an hour, because they couldn't afford to buy one. A load of hay was the growing price to rent a Bible for an hour. And they're giving up the feed that they give their animals, which is going to feed them. They're giving that up just to read the Word of God for an hour. I mean, when you think about things like this and you think, you know, this isn't some place that we're not familiar with. This isn't somewhere where there's a, a horrible dictatorship that's keeping the, the Word of God out of the hands of the people. This is England. This is our language that's so common now. And it was denied the people that they could hear Scripture in English. And it was considered illegal to own these Bibles. Uh, there, there come, there's a wave of persecution that goes on that to even own these Bibles or to, be, to have one of these manuscripts is considered, uh, you know, it, it, it'll lead to a lot of punishment. They even have, the, they, the Wycliffe translators made, they made smaller Bibles. I mean, they'd make those big Bibles, those decorated ones. This is one of the small ones. And the reason they made it small is so you could hide it. This is the original conceal and carry. They are making these little tiny Bibles so you can tuck them away. They're secret Bibles, pirate Bibles. This is the same kind of work that friends of ours are doing in different parts of the world right now. Some of that could lead to persecution. Some of it doesn't. It could. You might want to say that there are powers that are oppressing the people because they, they don't want Scripture out of their control. And sometimes when we fight over the translations, I mean, you can, you've got your, you know, if you've got your preferred translation of the Bible, God bless you. You know, people ask me, which one are you reading from? You know, I read from about three. I read from the New Living Translation, from the Message, and from the NIV when I'm reading to you. Why? Because it communicates well for our day and age. Do I think those are perfect translations? No. Not at all. Uh... And sometimes I, you know, I fuss with them. But we can't control the Scripture. The Scripture places a control over us. We have to be obedient to it. And I think that when we start to get threatened, that we can no longer control Scripture, we better be careful because the Word of God is living. What's coming next in, in this history, there's going to be some developments in the world that are going to lead to um, that are going to lead to William Tyndale and his translation and what happens there uh, to get the Bible in English. I told you that Wycliffe's name is still associated 
with Bible translators. There are groups that go to other countries, places where um, people don't have the Scripture in their language. And this group are known as the Wycliffe Bible Translators. They've taken, now, there's another group called Pioneer that we're more familiar with, but it's the same idea. It's the same spirit. Um, well, I hope this week that that inspires you to read the Word of God that you have so handily at your fingertips. People gave their lives and they would give up their, their hard work just to read the Word of God for an hour. It, it fascinates me. And I'm, I'm grateful that I get to spend my life studying this and teaching it to others. As we uh, stand and sing this song together, if you need to partake of communion, it's been prepared in room 100. After this, Lee Beeman will dismiss us in prayer.